going to talk about why a psalm was written. For example, Psalm 3. It says, David's fleeing from Absalom. Many of them say, to the chief musician. In other words, these words were put to song. Uh, David wrote about 75 or half of the psalms. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And many of you know, David would play for Saul at times where he was downcast. The psalmists declare that we should praise the Lord. We should praise him in song. Uh, Psalm 150 ends the psaltery by giving what we think is a command to praise the Lord. I actually look at it as an allowance. Because if you're a believer and you look at a sunset or God does something in your life or something inspires you in the word, I think like me, you just burst forth in praise. It's something that's new to us and it's genuine. Some of you through this series, you know what your great learning is going to be? That you can be undignified. Some of you have followed Christ all your life and you've never been undignified before him. I'm praying that that can happen during this series. Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord, and then it tells us the instruments that we should praise him on. The trumpet, the lute, the harp, none of which are up here, by the way. And I'll give my eye teeth if anybody signs up and says, I'll play the harp in worship. Uh, I'll make sure you get on the worship team. Talks about the timbrel, the stringed instruments, the flute, the loud and clashing cymbals, which we do. And if you think they're too loud, take it up with God, not with me. He has it right here in his word. It ends by saying, let everything... Everything that has the breath of God, praise the Lord. Some of the richest and most favorite songs, hymns that we have sung on Sunday mornings come word for word from the psalm. Sometimes we don't even realize it, and we're going to sing many of them in this series. But my learning in the last 10 years is that the psalms are not only Israel's songbook, but it was the prayer book of Israel. When I read the Christmas story and I look at a girl that's 16 years old and Gabriel comes and says, you have found favor with God and you're going to deliver forth the Messiah and you'll call his name Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit will overtake you and this holy thing that will be born will be called the Son of God. I mean, that's weighty for a 16-year-old. And what does Mary do? She bursts forth in praise even though she doesn't understand this calling. And we call it her Magnificat because she says, My soul does magnify the Lord, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And in those nine verses, at least of what we have recorded, she quotes Psalm 138, Psalm 103, Psalm 98. These people who lived in the Galilee, who were fishermen and farmers, were rich in theology and the Psalms permeated their being. Jesus, when he went to Gethsemane, when he was nailed to the cross, reached for the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it breaks down this myth that if I need a little pep in my step or I need some inspirational devotional material, I'll just open to the Psalms. Be careful, you might open to the Psalms and find what you're not looking for. In reality, the Psalms are uncensored, authentic, and raw in their expression of the highs and lows of the human experience, what it's like for finite people to follow an infinite God we cannot see, who has delivered to us his word that is only a lamp unto our feet. It only gives us the next step. It's very interesting that 99% of the Bible is God's word to us. The prophets say over and over, thus saith the Lord, we have the history of Israel, the history of the church, we have Jesus' words in red. But only the Psalms are man's words to God. Think about that, it's very unique. The Psalms are man's words to God, man crying out to a holy God, and those words have become the very word of God. 
And because the Bible's inspired by God, it kind of fits that Romans 8.26, that 1 Corinthians teaching about there's these groanings that cannot be uttered, and in some ways God inspired these groanings and they've become the Word of God. The Psalms divide up into two books, Psalms of Praise, Psalms of Lament. You guys ready for a little, little interaction here? So I'll read a psalm, and you tell me if it's praise or lament. And you know all the Sunday morning psalms are softballs because you guys just get out of bed and so forth. So we'll start with Psalm 136, 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, his mercy endures forever. Psalm of lament, psalm of praise. Praise, praise right, right, very easy. Uh, by the way, you guys probably don't do it, but there are critics of our worship. Did you know that? Critics of our contemporary worship will say, oh, you guys play those 7-Eleven songs? I'm like, 7-Eleven songs? What are you talking about? Uh, seven words repeated 11 times over. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. Give thanks to the Lord. It's mercy endures forever. And, and did you ever notice somewhere around 7 o'clock at night, you find yourself singing one of the songs we sang in this set? Or your kids are in the back car singing it. There's something about these songs that make them memorable. So the Psalms of praise are filled with a heart of gratitude for all that God has done. Uh, read through the Psalms. You'll be surprised how many times they praise God for the deliverance from Egypt. A very important milestone in their history. Praise and gratitude is a big part of who we are. G.K. Chesterton had a lot to say about gratitude. He said, when we were children, we were grateful for those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. He said, why are we not grateful to the God who has filled our stockings with legs? Someone asked Chesterton if he prayed over his meals. He goes, I not only pray over my meals, I pray when I go to the theater, I pray before I swim, I pray before I go to the park, I pray with my eyes open. He said, I cannot believe the experience. He said, God has given us this day. He goes, I don't know why he gives us two. And the Psalms are filled with the, with the capacity of human resource, of human language to celebrate the greatness of God and to, to express our benefit for all that he has done. I read a, quite a lot of management books uh, as a hobby. And uh, a lot of these books will say that you should walk around uh, your office and just praise people. Just catch them off guard, praising them for what they're doing. In other words, be intentional about it. And I think that's a good idea. Um, my praise is more spontaneous. Like this backdrop here. Now I was part of the planning and all that, but when I walked in one day and saw this, I'm like, guys, this is amazing. I'm so glad you guys are on our team. You know, and that's what the Psalms are. They're, they're, they're not planned. Bless me, Father, for these food, this food which I'm now to receive. You know, they're spontaneous in their reaction. Like when you see a beautiful sunset or a child born. Psalm 113 says, praise the Lord from the rising of the sun till it's going down. The name of the Lord shall be praised. Lament or praise? Praise, yeah, that's easy. Psalm 6, Lord, do not in your wrath chasten me and do not in your fury discipline me. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing and my bones are rattled. Yeah, that's lament, right? Sounds like God's going to give somebody a spanking, doesn't it? <laughs> the Psalms of lament, again, do away with this idea that we go to the Psalms uh, 
to find inspiration. It also does away with the idea, and Bono talks about this a lot, that we can't be honest before God. You can't live any amount of time on this earth and have circumstances come your way where you're not mad, angry, or in doubt of why they're happening. You'd be surprised how impolite the psalmists are. They cry out to God in their wrath sometimes. They accuse him of abandonment, Psalm 22 and 88. Murder, Psalm 22. Falling asleep at the wheel, Psalm 44. They even try to bribe God in chapter 6. And I love Psalm 39, where they basically tell God to go away. Uh, my granddaughter is six, and she does this to my wife. My wife is Marmy from Little Women. And she'll come to my wife and say, Marmy, stay downstairs for a while. That means she's going to go out and do something naughty, right? And we do that to God a lot. Again, the Psalms are raw in their expression. Paul David Tripp, who was with us this summer, taught Psalm 73. I think it was one of the best talks we ever had here. He said one of the reasons for the Psalms in the Bible is to give us the courage to cry and to teach us when to cry. Crying is part of the human experience. Jesus wept. Lazarus died. Bad things happen to good people. David said, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You've been angry, oh restore us. Oh Lord, how many are my enemies? Answer when I call. God, why are you far away? How have you forgotten me, oh Lord? C.S. Lewis said there is something about human life and human nature that when you see something that is praiseworthy or admirable, our, our instinct to express adoration. Again, Chesterton said the worst thing about being an atheist is when something good happens, you have no one to thank. You go to the Grand Canyon and you're like, oh, and you just have to chalk it up to nature or chance, or a thousand other things. We've called this series Adoration because we're going to praise God whether we're on a mountain or in a valley, whether we feel like praising him or we're lamenting him. We're going to give adoration to the one who gave us breath. For the next eight weeks, we're going to explore the Psalms. We're going to join 3,000 years of congregations who have mined these truths. And I think it's going to be a defining moment for us. We're going to praise and pray our way through the Psalms. It's going to be very uh, moving at times. Our services are going to look different. Uh, you might be surprised walking in that we sang two songs, got right into the teaching. We might pray and pray somewhere in the service. We have special songs. We have arts pieces, all with the goal to teach us what adoration looks like and gratitude for the God that we serve. So are you guys ready? All right, that was all just my opener. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 8. Now, one of the problems with choosing the Psalms for eight weeks is I didn't want to choose the easy ones, but you can't preach the Psalms without preaching Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would visit him? 
For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Almost every time I've heard Psalm 8 taught, it's been taught as a creation psalm. And in many ways it is. It follows Genesis. It follows all that we know about creation. It aligns with everything of creation that we find in Scripture. And you guys know, no one loves creation more than I do. I could speak of the doctrine of creation almost every single week. I love to read about it. I love to discover it. But there's something deeper here. David is having an outburst of praise. He's in awe of God. Verses 3 to 5, you know, when he looks at the moon and the stars, he says, God, what is man? that you are mindful of him. Now, David was a shepherd, not by choice. It was a, it was a lowly job. It was given to him. But he used it to his advantage. And, and David would lay out and look at the stars and the moon. And, you know, no smog, no city lights. And he could almost reach up and touch a star. I've had the closest experience to that on Mount Sinai during our Egypt trip. So uh, we had all day to tour. Nor- normal touring day, had dinner. They said, look, anybody who wants to climb Mount Sinai, you got to be there 11 o'clock in the lobby. And by the way, we're touring the next day too. So a bunch of us go down to the lobby. It's 11 o'clock at night. By the time we got to the base of the mountain, it was midnight. And it was about 65 degrees. It was nice and cool. And we started on this journey. They put girls on camels. Guys had to walk. And I got to tell you, ask anybody on the trip, I whined like a baby the entire time. They had these little bailout rooms every mile or so little lean-tos that had Coca-Cola, ramen noodles, and a mattress where you could quit and people would get you on the way down. Um, They told us, look, when you get really close, the last bailout station, there'll be 750 steps to the top. So I get to the last bailout station. I would have quit long ago if I wasn't the leader of the tour. And um, I get there, and ramen noodles are $4. I would have paid $40, because now it's about 40 degrees outside, and we're freezing, and people are spending $20 to borrow blankets. Arabs were selling blankets there. I wanted to bail out so bad, but I thought 750 steps, you've got to just climb like the steps of the art museum, and we're there. So I found out these were big steps, four feet high, and I whined worse than I did the four hours to get to that point. One lady on the trip, 70 years old, paid an Arab guy to carry her to the top. (laughs) We get to the top. I never saw anything like it. Top of Mount Sinai. Stars. Like you could grab them. But here's what's fascinating. When the sun came up, the moon was on one side and the sun was on the other side and you could almost reach out and touch them. One of the most majestic experiences I ever had. And David is having that kind of experience. He's he's awed by the creation. And think about David. He has about one one one-thousandth of the knowledge that you and I have. In David's time, they thought the stars were fixed in number, about 250 of them. Today, we know there are billions. They are innumerable. And yet David was able to look at the grandeur of God and say, God, you did this all with the span of your hand. span of your hand is like from your thumb to your forefinger. 
He didn't know the universe was 12 billion miles, light years in radius. You might think, Pastor Bob, how big is that? About this big to God. David didn't understand that. David didn't know about Occam's razor, the fine-tuning of the universe. He didn't see the things we see with the Hubble telescope. USA Today recently published this article. Astronomer Stephen Saran of the American Astronomical Society said that planets, which includes both the smallest and the closest of the 51 detected since 1995, point to a sky crowded with planetary systems like our own. He said these findings allow scientists to make the first informed estimates of how often stars have solar systems with one drawback. He said, we're finding so many planets. He said, it's actually getting a little boring. When God said light be, it never stopped. And the universe is expanding. Everyone understands that. How could David have known this? How could David, when he looked at the moon, realize if it was two degrees farther or two degrees closer, we would have global flooding? How could he look at the moon, which looked the same size as the sun during the day? That's how we get solar eclipse. How would he ever know you could put 64 million of our moons in a sun? And yet he said, God, this is the work of your fingers. He was in awe, and yet he didn't have all this understanding. How did David know about the paths in the sea? He was a shepherd, and the Jews feared the sea. It wasn't until the 1800s when an American nautical officer who was sick and the lady was reading him this psalm perked up and said, the paths in the sea. And he put bottles out the next day and he found shipping channels and statues down in Richmond, Virginia. So you look at the psalm and it's filled with grandeur of the universe. And, and he said, God, you, you're amazing. But this is what I want you to see this morning. In verse 1, David said this, but God, you have set your glory above the heavens. Got to understand that. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are not the glory of God. They declare God's glory. He said, God, your glory supersedes all of this. And the Bible goes out of its way time and time again to strip the natural world of its divinity and to point us to the one who created it all. Romans says that the reprobate mind exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You see, the little secret is that atheists love the creation too. Richard Dawkins is a zoologist. He gave himself to that career because he loves the fine-tuning and the intricacy of the world. But he can't give glory to the one who created it. David said, this is just a reflection of of your glory. And so what he does is he brackets this psalm by talking about how excellent the name of the Lord is. God, your name is excellent in all the world. It's, it's even greater than your creation. The name of God meant everything to David. Do you know why? Look at your little subscript under Psalm 8. It says this was on the instrument of Gath. Anybody know somebody from Gath? Come on, you all do. Yeah, there was a trash-talking, 10-foot, shack-like Philistine named Goliath. And the Bible says he was from Gath, and he was taunting Israel. And in those days when armies would fight, they were smarter than we were, they would say, look, instead of having all these casualties, you pick your greatest soldier, we'll pick our greatest soldier, let them battle, and whoever wins, wins. 
And David would come through the camp of Israel, excuse me, Goliath, and he would trash talk Israel. And David's brothers were out in the front line and they're scared and David gets wind of this and he comes to Saul as the king and he said, I can fight this trash-talking Philistine. And he talks Saul into it and Saul puts his armor on David and, you know, it just doesn't fit and it's clunky and he says, look, let me just use this stick and some stones and I'm kind of used to it and I think it'll work. And he comes out against Goliath and Goliath is cracking up. He goes, you're coming with me with sticks and stones like I'm a dog? David responds in 1 Samuel 17, he said, Thou comest at me with a sword and spear and shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Now, mind you, David had skill. You know, I, say, I think sometimes we go out and we say, well, I'm going to do this in the name of God. David had skill. David was a slinger. He had killed wild animals from 100 yards away with small stones. He knew what he was doing. He was taking what was to his advantage and he would use it against Goliath. But his complete trust and confidence was in the name of the Lord. Where's your confidence this morning? How much confidence do you have in the name of the Lord? And so with a little bit of time that we had this morning, I want to tell you the three things the name of the Lord means to me. And I reflected on this the last couple of weeks. And the first thing it means to me is that I have found the God I was looking for. Think about it. We all grew up in some religion, we all grew up in some philosophy, but, but we always knew there was a God out there. We always knew if there was God, he had to be a certain way. David says here, Lord, our Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Uh, the Jews don't even know how to pronounce that. It's Y-H-V-H in the Hebrew. So what they do is they took words from Adonai and they made Yahweh or Jehovah. But they won't speak it. It's the unspeakable name of God. Um, to Moses, God revealed himself as I am that I am. The becoming one. In other words, God will become all that you need. Uh, can't express it in one name, so we have like Jehovah Jireh, our provider, Jehovah Rapha, our healer, Je- Jehovah Salaam, he's our peace. He's becoming all that we need, but listen, not all that we want. See, that's the error in the church today, that God will become your homeboy, your business partner, your friend. Just tag him along and you can live the greatest life. No, he's becoming all that I need. And time and time again, when Moses needed God's help, he was the becoming one. He's the God you're looking for. He's a refuge in time of need. He's the God of peace. He's the God that listens. He's he's all you need. Again, I said it before, we don't go spiritually grocery shopping anymore. We're not looking for the latest fad, the latest book. We have found the becoming one. And David said, O Lord, our Lord. In other words, Jehovah our Adonai. Adonai means master. It's a title for God. In other words, this God has become my master. And that was so important to David. I don't think I have to tell you guys this morning, there's a giant in our land. And he's coming to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants the next generation. He wants to confuse them about gender. He wants to confuse them about what's right and wrong. He wants to confuse them about marriage. There's a giant in our land. And he's trash talking. 
Because the Bible says Satan like a roaring lion. That's all he can do is roar his fiery darts. And the church is trying to fight him with Saul's armor. We're trying to fight him with the armor of the world. You know, we're trying to do a, you know, we're trying to combat the world with their methods, and we can't do it. We'll lose hook, line, and sinker. They got more firepower. They've outmanned us, outgunned us. What we need is a David who will say, I trust in the name of the Lord. By the name of the Lord, we can overcome. David trusted in God's name. It meant everything to him. Number two, the name of the Lord means to me that I understand my rightful place in the world. This is very important. David believed in a big God. God, you're so vast. Your glory's above the heavens. What is man? He's inconsequential. He's insignificant. God, you've got a universe to run. What is man? And he talks about the, the work of his fingers. Now, you all know God doesn't have fingers, right? That's an anthropomorphism where we give human characteristics to God so we can understand them. So when I think of God creating the world, I know he created the world by saying light be, and Hebrews you know, 12.3 says, by faith I understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so things are seen. Yeah, I get all that. But when I listen to David, I picture a Norman Rockwell drawing of an old man with you know, round glasses and he's putting a little model together, or maybe a ship in a bottle. Picture God as intimate with his creation, as an artist with a palette, the work of his fingers. See, the great lie that exists in our day is that the natural world just evolved. It's a product of a long string of accidental and fortunate circumstances and a random chance of sequences that made us who we are today. Um, kind of want to show you this. This is fascinating. The Bible, and much of what David says in Psalm 8, tells us that there's God, the angels, man, the animals, insects, and plants. Today, we're told there is no God, there's no metaphysical world, there's nothing, you know, none of that can be observed. So man's at the top of the food chain, then there's animals, insects, and plants. So which way would you rather have it? In man's scheme, we're a little higher than the animals. People come up to me, they want to be real smart. Pastor Bob, don't you know 98% of the DNA of a human and an ape is the same? Yeah. So, what's your point? Well, 98% of a human and an ape is the same. Yeah, where'd you hear that? Where, where are you going with this? Because if you're trying to tell me that evolution is true, then I'm going to tell you what you're telling me is that last 2% is... Michelangelo, Dante, Chris Rock. I mean, come on. You know, when I was growing up, people said, oh, you're just good at basketball because you're tall. That's like saying, well, Usain Bolt's just good at track because he's fast. I mean, give me a break, right? Well, we can train monkeys to deal cards and to do so forth and so on. Yeah, but you wouldn't want monkeys doing brain surgery on you, right? So would you rather be a little higher than the animals? Would you rather be a little lower than the angels? If you tell people they're animals long enough, they'll behave like animals. Watch this. Angels 
have spirits and no body. Animals have bodies and no spirits. God made man spirit, soul, and body, and then crowned him with glory and honor and made him in his image. In all of this creation, God said, you're it. You're the apple of my eye. You are the highest of creation. And what the rest of the Bible tells us is that we're looking upward. We're not looking at our former condition, our base condition. We're going upwards. We're looking at the angels. We're looking at God. We're looking to become Christ-like. That's our journey. That's the Christian journey. Look at verse 5. You made him. Circle that. You made him. For those of you think, who believe in theistic evolution, you made him. David wasn't a theistic evolutionist. You made him a little lower than the angels. He made Adam out of dust, Eve out of a rib. Even Jeremiah, centuries later, you formed me in the womb. And the psalmist said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David said, God's a big God. He gave made man in his image. Then he takes us another step. And this is my third re- thing of what I think of the name of God. God wants to be in relationship with me. The God who made the vastness of the universe wants to know my name, my every thought, my every fear. I'm the apple of his eye. Psalm 139, 17 says, How precious also are your thoughts toward me, O God. If I should count them, they would be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. When was the last time you thought of God that way? When was the last time you thought of God knowing every single fear, thought that's going through your mind? You say, Pastor Bob, how do I know that's true? What if that was David's opinion? What if it's a metaphor? You know how you know it's true? Because Jesus went to a wedding one day. And everybody was having a good time, and they ran out of wine, and Mary comes and says they're out of wine. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And John said it was the beginning of all his miracles. Now what's fascinating about that is Jesus' ministry was antithetical to that. He never did miracles for miracles' sake. He always healed people, and it always pointed to something greater. You know, if he healed blind eyes, it, 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 it spoke to spiritual eyesight. This is the one time where Jesus just does something that seems so, so unlike him. But it says this was the first of his miracles to reveal his glory. He was bringing joy back to man's relationship with God. He was bringing joy back to the, to the, to the marriage experience. He was the wine giver. He wanted man to experience joy. We talked about DNA. 98% of chimpanzee and human DNA is the same. How about this? 99.9% of all human DNA is the same. But that point oh 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 one is you and me and you and me. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They were insignificant creatures. You could get two for a penny. Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's knowing it or his will. You are of more value than sparrows. In fact, every hair on your head is numbered. I told you I love creation. I love the latter parts of Job. It's actually my favorite reading. 
You read about Leviathan and Behemoth, these chaos monsters. God tells Job, they were the best I ever did. That That was the best of my creation. And you read these chapters of these animals that no one sees or looks at. And God's raving about them. Listen to what Annie Dillard said about these chapters. She said, the world is full of creatures that for some reason seem stranger to us than others. And libraries are full of books describing them. Hagfish, platypuses, lizard-like pangolins, four feet long with bright green lap scales like umbrella trail leaves on a bush root. Butterflies emerging from anthills, spiderlings wafting through the air, clutching tiny silking balloons, horseshoe crabs the creator creates. Does he stoop? Does he speak? Does he save, succor, prevail? Maybe. But he creates. He creates everything and anything. The creator goes off on one wild specific tangent after another, or a million simultaneously with exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted, and with an abandoned energy sprung from an unfathomable font. What is going on here? The part of the dragonfly's terrible lip, the giant water bug, bird song, or the beautiful dazzle and flash of sunlight at minnows is not that it all fits together like clockwork, for it doesn't, not even inside the goldfish bowl, but that it all flows so freely and wild like the creek that it all surges in such a free fringe tangle. Freedom is the world's water and weather, the world's nourishment freely given, its soil and sap, And Annie Dillard said the creator loves pizzazz. He loves pizzazz. Look at our world. You can never see it all in a lifetime. And the creator that loves pizzazz loves you and me more than anything. He crowned us with glory and honor. And out of babes, you have ordained strength. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, they hailed him as the king. And he said, have you never read? And he quotes this psalm, which really infuriated them because he was saying that he was God. And you made him a little lower than the angels and have given him dominion over all the birds of the air and the the fish that go through the paths of the sea. And no matter what we're going through, To be in relationship with that God who said he knocks on the door of our heart, he wants to be intimate with us, he hears every word we say, it it just changes all of life. It gives us right perspective. That the God who loves pizzazz loves our adoration, loves spontaneous praise. Uh, Saw a lady the other day, and she corrected her son, and she said, son, don't you know God's watching I thought, boy, that's bad theology. What she was saying is, don't do that. He's watching you like he wants to catch you doing something bad. I wanted to tell that boy, he wants to catch you doing something good. And he's watching you like I watch my kids at a ball game and where they're sleeping. I look at their freckles. I look at their hair. I look at them when they shine and when they grow. That's what God's looking for. That's what he's watching. That's what the name of the Lord means to me. He knows my every thought. He knows my every need. Psalm 8 was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. Philippians 2 says, He who was made like us, lower than the angels, was given the name that is higher than the heavens. It's the name above all names. Because he is God.
Hebrews chapter 2, that every knee and every mouth should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've prepared a special song for you guys. And while you're singing it, I want you to think of this sand. I quoted that psalm where it says, God's thoughts towards you, if you could count them, were like the sand on the shore. So many of you come to me and say, Pastor Bob, I'm ready to throw in the towel. God doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't hear me. I feel like when I pray, the heavens are like brass. Doesn't he see what I'm going through? And this God who created the world with his finger, just the people in this room, let alone seven billion people, these are how many thoughts he's had of you just this morning. He's the God you're looking for. He's all you need. He's not going to give you all you want, but he's going to give you all you need. I want you to think about this. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this awesome song. Let this be your spontaneous praise to God. I'll come back and we'll close the service.